All right, take your Bibles and go over to, we'll start in Ephesians chapter 5, and then we're going to be in Ezekiel, we're going to be in Solomon, Song of Solomon 2, and then we're going to be in Genesis 1. So we're going to be all over the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to start. Before we do, so as a pastor, I get which is arguably the best seats in the house when it comes to a wedding. And I love weddings. I love them because there's all kinds of drama. You know, there's different family members who don't want to sit by each other. And, uh, and, and, and the bride and groom get to try and figure out what they're going to do with the, um, the order of the service and, and everything else. And because I've spent some time with the bride and groom and I know a little bit about their story, I know that there's some level of brokenness. In the, I mean, every family's got elements of brokenness in it, right? Every family's got elements of dysfunction in it. And that tends to show up at a, at a wedding. The, um, the, 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 the uncle who you tried to disinvite found out about the wedding, and he came, and you're like, how did Jim find out about it? And who posted it on Facebook? And you're like, Grandma, you know, so. Um, and yet, in the midst of all of this uh, brokenness, there is something that's incredibly beautiful. And when I, when I stand where I'm at at a wedding, I can't help but think, that there is something otherworldly that's happening. When, that, when the door is open and the bride walks down the aisle, and I, I, I'm right at the front, so I see her, and I see her dad and her walking. I mean, it, it is a glorious scene. And the, the mom, if she remembers, stands and turns, you know. Everyone else turns and sees that, that bride coming down. It is a, it's, a, it's a glorious moment. Some of you have heard me tell the fact that I also think something's going on inside of the head of the dad in that moment oftentimes. I mean, he knows this little girl. He's raised her, right? And I, and I often know the, the girl really well. And sometimes the dad and I will just kind of make eye contact. And the look on his eyes says something like this. My, my daughter's beautiful. She's unbelievable. I love her so much. But this young man has no idea what he's getting himself into. <laughs> and he'll walk up and, and he'll look at me and I'll look at him and I'm like, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, all right. And then when I say, who gives this, you know, woman to this man? I do, I do, you know, I do. I give her, I give her. And, and, yet, and yet there's something at one level so funny about that because you know it's true. And yet also, isn't every wedding just, it's just, it's just, just beautiful. And when, when, a, when a young man and a young woman pledge their vows to one another, when, when they make that commitment before God and that pastor pronounces over them, by the power invested in me, I declare you to be husband and wife, something in that moment happens. Something glorious, something amazing. Hearts that are now brought together by God's sovereign design. So when I'm sitting in a in a wedding service, I, I just can't help but think, man, there is something um, really big that's going on here. Something that is stunning, something that is beautiful, something that is otherworldly. So, look at Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 25, we hear instructions as to how husbands are to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Keep that idea in mind. Cleansing, washing of water. Because in a minute we're looking at Ezekiel 16, and you'll see the, the beautiful picture of what's happening here. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So be, before we get into this text on a packet, let me just start there with saying this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It may be that you're here, and while you're at a marriage conference, you're still trying to figure out what it means when it says Christ loved the church. And I just want to be so bold as to say this. You will never be the husband or wife that God has designed you to be until you deal with the most critical issue and the biggest baggage that you bring into your marriage which is your own heart. And the tragedy of what the Bible tells us is that you, you cannot change your own heart. You can't change what you desire. I can't, I can't tell you, tomorrow don't be thirsty. You're gonna be thirsty. Don't go to the bathroom. You're gonna go to the bathroom. Don't breathe. You, you hold your breath for a little while, but you're gonna end up breathing. These, these things are part of the reality of who you are. And so the Bible tells us that our brokenness is who we are. We are born broken. Children are natural born sinners. You don't have to teach them to lie. And so what you bring into your marriage, the most beautiful thing is also the most dangerous thing, which is you bring your heart into marriage. And if your heart is set with you at its center, you'll never be the kind of person that God designed you to be in the context of marriage. So what my hope is, is that you might not even realize that your marriage problem is actually a subset of a bigger problem, which is that you've got a God problem and you need to come to the realization that you, you, you just can't run your life anymore. And the message of the Bible, and what Paul's talking about here is this, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, meaning Jesus died in order to take care of our sins. He died in order to change our hearts. And so in order for you to love your wife, in order for you to love your husband, it may mean that the first step is to say, you know what, I've got to settle this God and me thing. Because I'm just telling you, you, you won't ask for forgiveness in the way that you should. You won't love your wife or your husband in the way that you should. You won't know how to parent your children because you keep bringing in something into the equation that messes everything up, which is your own unredeemed heart. And yet the beautiful hope of this passage and others like it is that you can have Jesus take over your life if you'll just simply say, look, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died for my sins. I'm just, I'm done running my whole life. Would you come and take over? And it may be that your marriage or something that you've done in your marriage has brought you to the point where you're just like, who am I anymore? And it may be that the real problem isn't your marriage, it's not some kind of addiction, it's not some kind of communication issue or some kind of dysfunctional thing from your past. Those may all be issues, but the real issue underneath the issue is the fact that you're still trying to run your life, and every time you do, you run into a brick wall that you've made up for yourself. And so when this text says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, if you don't know what it means for Christ to have loved you, you won't know how to work this out. And so part of what I'd love, to, I'd love to have a conversation with you if that's what, where you're at, Part of what I hope happens is that you realize the need to put your trust in Jesus so that you can figure out, so what does it mean that Christ loved the church because this is how I'm supposed to love my wife? 
So Paul says that he might sanctify her, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he says this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's the reason why I've chosen this text, because of what happens next. Paul says this, this mystery is profound. What's he talking about? It's the mystery of marriage. This mystery, how you got a man and a woman, and then God puts them together, that the two become one flesh. And this mystery of this beautiful, beautiful union is profound. And I, I'm saying that it, meaning marriage, refers to Christ and the church. In other words, part of the beauty of marriage in the first session now becomes the mystery of marriage in the sense that the beautiful reality of marriage is that it platforms something more than just marriage, more than just sexuality, more than just raising kids, more than just making you feel secure, more than just simply making you feel good about yourself, and more than you not being alone. Marriage does something more, and namely it platforms the beauty of the gospel. When you have two broken people who figure out how to love one another and live in harmony with one another and care for one another and consider one another's needs as more important than their own and live their lives in, in submission to one another, there is something about that that screams of the beauty of God's grace. So, a number of points regarding the mystery of marriage. Number one is this. Marriage is a mystery that points to the gospel. There is something about marriage that clearly points to Christ and the church. In other words, husband and wives, when you are working out your conflicts and you love one another in your brokenness, there is something about that that speaks of the beauty of the gospel. When you... Um, my wife loves a clean countertop in the kitchen. Some of you have asked, who is your wife anyways? She's here. Would you like to know where she is? I think Sarah, would you stand so people can know you do really exist? She's all the way in the back. There she is. Say hi to Sarah. There she is. All right, very good. Thank you, honey. That's, that's, um, that's my wife. I love her to death. My wife loves a clean countertop. I... I don't care about a clean countertop. When she's gone for days, we don't clean the countertop. But when she comes home and we, we, we plot her travels on the phone, I tell the kids, let's get the countertops clean. In fact, just before we left tonight, I said to Savannah, hey, honey, do Dad a favor. Go down and clean the countertops, which really means do Dad a favor so Mom can have the favor to clean the countertops. But so I, I, don't, I don't love clean countertops, but what I love is the fact that my wife loves a clean countertop. And so when I see a countertop that's dirty, I think, let's clean this because I want her to enjoy a clean countertop. I want her to walk in from her long day, and have there be like emotional music going off in her head, like, whoa, clean countertop, 
So that's what I want to have happen. And I've got things like that in my life as well that my wife could care very little about, except for the fact that she knows that I love and appreciate that. And so therefore, here's what's happened, is that her love for something has become my love for something. And I just have to tell you, that is not normal human behavior. And when that happens, there is something that communicates to my soul about the beauty of what Christ has done in me. There is a gospel effect. Yes, the gospel relates to clean countertops. It does. Because I want to serve her because I have been served immeasurably by the beauty of the gospel through Jesus. And so it's an act of worship. The goal is for your marriage and for your affection in marriage to be that which points you to Christ. And that's everything, how you parent, how you handle your finances, how you communicate to one another, how you make love to one another. All of these things become worship that magnify the beauty of what God has given to you in himself and in and through the person and work of Jesus. It becomes a platform to say, you not only saved me from my sins, but you gave me a woman who loves me. She knows me, and yet she loves me. She knows me, she loves me, and she makes love to me. That's crazy. She knows me and makes love to me. That's beautiful. Anybody can make love to someone they don't know. You buy that, pay for that, click on that. That's, that's not love. But to have somebody who knows you and loves you, who knows you and makes love to you, that, that's a gift. A gift from God himself. And Paul says, this mystery is profound. He says one flesh. He's not just talking about closeness and relationship. He's talking about a spiritual union that includes the mingling of souls together at every level, including a physical mingling. So marriage is a mystery that points to the gospel. Here's the second thing. Now go to all the way to Ezekiel. We're in Ephesians. Go to Ezekiel. The second thing is this, is that marriage is God's preferred metaphor for his relationship with his people. So what, what I find just fascinating is not only that God describes this relationship between a husband and wife as that which is a strong bond, but when God wants to show the extent of his relationship with his people, he uses marital terminology. God could have chosen any metaphor. He could have said friends, children. Instead, he chooses a marital metaphor to refer to his own people. So look at, if you have your Bible, look at Ezekiel 16 and verse 8, and notice how precious this is. It says, and the whole chapter is super meaningful, but let me just... Verse 8. Well... In verses 1 to 5, let me just set this up. He, the image is that he finds this child that has been abandoned. And then after he's found this child wallowing in blood and brought to life in verse 6, then this young girl um, grows up. Look at um, verse 7. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, and yet you were naked and bare. Verse 8. 
When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were of the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vows to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Hear the parallels to Ephesians 5? It's the same thing, washing of the water of the word. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in a fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and bracelets on your wrists and a chain about your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ear and a beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. This is a rags to riches story. And God says, this is what I did for you, Israel. And what God wanted to choose an analogy, a metaphor, a powerful word picture to emulate the beauty of his love for the people of Israel, he chooses this kind of marriage story. And then he also uses the breakage of marriage to describe their spiritual wandering. What kind of emotional word could God use to describe how heartbroken he is when Israel wanders away? And so then look at verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. Verse 22, and in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Skip ahead to verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square. You were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men, gives gifts. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. You were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. You gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are different. You see what God's doing here? It's loaded. Powerful language that God uses to describe the ache that he feels in his heart when Israel wanders away. Now, what's my point using that? My point is this, is marriage and sexuality in marriage are such powerful realities that when God wants to describe his infinite love for his people, he chooses marriage. And when he wants to describe their wandering from him and how much it breaks his heart, he uses sexual sin as the metaphor. Why does he do that? Because there are not two more poignant physical and human realities than marriage and sexual activity, sexuality in the confines of marriage. So, marriage and sexuality 
have something connected to them that relates to another world. It points to something else. So a good marriage, a husband that loves his wife, a wife who loves her husband, when that works with communication and sexuality and understanding and oneness of heart, there is something about this relationship that points to the beauty of who Jesus is. So I, I hope that sometime this weekend you will just find yourself stopping and praying and saying, thank you, God, because this thing right here says something about you. Like, I can't believe you gave this woman to me. I can't believe you gave this man to me. Think, think of, of all the people in the earth, like, you put us together. I'd love to hear the story how each of you met, because it's amazing how God works, isn't it? I remember walking around college campus thinking, hope she's here. <laughs> hope she's here. Well, Lord, I hope she's here praying for her, been praying for this young woman all my high school days. Some of you have heard me tell the story was Sarah and I met because preaching a sermon, freshman class chaplain, really cute redhead on the front row, listening very attentively to the sermon. It's a really good sermon. <laughs> and um, friends leaned over to her and she said, I think he's looking at you. I'm like, no, I wouldn't do that. It's a sermon. <laughs> So I, I, there's no rewards for this sermon in heaven. I, I got it all on earth. <laughs> so, so afterwards, we're, we're standing in lunch line at our university, and Sarah was behind me in the line, and I turned behind her, and I said, hey, thanks for listening so well to the sermon. <laughs> she said, oh, that was, that was a great sermon. So thank you. I said, um, do you want to, I don't know, talk about it Friday night out <laughs> Big Boy in Xenia? She said, sure. We got married. It's all worked out, so it's great. <laughs> Went out to Big Boy, and we sat across the table and uh, started talking, and Sarah leaned in the table, and she said, so tell me, so God's called you to be a pastor? She said, maybe yes. She said, that's good. I said, yeah, I think so. She said, no, no, it's real good, because the Lord's called me to be a pastor's wife. So, like, if that's not where you're headed, this is probably be the last time we'll go out. Wow. It's like awesome. Like there's good clarity here. Like I like this. I can do this. It's all right. And that's and just to think of it, God was orchestrating our lives together, merging our lives, and there it was. And just think of it, God did that for you. Different story, certainly on a sermon, I hope. Some other story how God brought the two of you together and, and, he, and he knew exactly what you needed right when you needed this person and this person has been brought into your life for the purpose of, of completing you and making you into the person that God wants you to be he knew that you needed the spouse that you have in order for you to be the kind of person that God wants you to be and you are so fortunate to have that person in your life there was a conversation my wife and I were having and she was pointing out some um some very small growth area needed in my life. And um, I was uh, receiving it extremely well and, and, and with great humility. And uh, she actually did it in such a way that it was very easy to receive. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I totally blew that. And I stopped and I said, you know, I'm so grateful that you're in my life. So who in the world would tell me that? The dog's not going to tell me that. 
And he said, can you think? And we thought of some single friends, and I just thought, how hard must that be? Like, you don't have someone to process stuff every day with? Even the stupid stuff. Stuff that you're embarrassed with. Stuff that makes you look dumb. Stuff that you're excited about. Like, oh, I can't wait to tell my wife about this or my husband about this. And to think, I get to process this with you. And then you get to reflect it back. And then God gets to use you to form Christ in me. And I'm going to be a better man because of this relationship. Like, who gets to do this? This is unbelievable. That's what marriage is meant to be. That kind of beautiful relationship. And yet so often, how do we come? Like, who does she think she is telling me? He's got, he's got a lot of work on. He should be talking to me about his stuff. A lot of junk in his drawer, you know. The fact of the matter is, is that marriage is a beautiful ability to help us to become more like Jesus. I hope that when my wife stands before Jesus, that she'll be able to say, because of you, Jesus, and because of the word, and because of my husband, I followed you faithfully all the days of my life. I hope that it isn't in spite of my husband I'm here, but I hope that it's because of my husband. As Christ loved the church. Husbands, wash your wives with the word. Just think of what that means. So there's something mysterious, something otherworldly. Now let's go over to Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And then we're going to go to Genesis. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. The third point is this, that marriage is powerful because of its, of its exclusivity. There are things that happen in the confines of marriage, and I'm not just talking about sexually, I mean that, but I mean other things, that marriage is special because it's just the two of you and nobody else. Like, it's exclusive. And we see this. She calls herself, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. So she's saying that she is one among many. This is not a compliment to herself. Again, there's, there's an aspect of insecurity here. And in verse 2, he then hears what she says, and he turns it. She called herself a lily among the valleys, and he says, no, 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 you're, you're a lily among brambles. She's like, I'm just a flower of the field. He said, no, baby, you're a flower, you're a rose among thorns. So is my love among the young women. In other words, of all of these women, my heart's set on you. See what he's doing? He's communicating the exclusivity. He has chosen her. We don't have time, but we can go to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says nearly the same thing to Israel. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest nation on the earth. I didn't choose you because you were many people. I set my love on you, and I chose you because of my favor and because of my grace. Or the book of Malachi says that God chose the people of Israel. The idea is he set his love on the people of Israel. And it's just a really good reminder that when a husband and wife commit themselves to one another, they're in effect saying, I choose you and I choose you. We have, we have chosen to love one another. And marriage is powerful because of its exclusivity. In other words, that relationship needs to be so sacred and so special that no friend, no other lover, no other image, no other hobby, no other career, you just fill in the blanks, anything else should take precedent over the importance of that relationship. 
in, in my life, in our premarital counseling, I learned to be God's kind of person, then God's kind of partner, then God's kind of parent, and then God's kind of pastor. And as I look at the qualifications of elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, it seems to bear that priority out. Be God's kind of person, God's kind of partner, God's kind of parent, and God's kind of pastor. And in my mind, that relationship of being God's kind of partner is save only my relationship with Christ, the most important relationship on earth. And so my question for you is, does, does, your, does your calendar reflect that? Does, does, does your, do your emotions reflect that? When, when you come home from work, men, are, are you regularly grumpy? Do you walk in and now you, you had to be all like kind to everybody else at work because you don't want them to think bad of you. And now you walk in and you're the, the real jerk has come home because the social pressure at work is gone. But now you're just going to let it all hang out because these people can't go anywhere because they live in your house. There's a lot of women who deal with grumpy men who just act like they are kids with their negative emotions because now they're just taking it out and everybody else is at home. Or you treat your marriage as, look, I'm going to save energy. And when I get there, I'm going to take all these things from work as hard as it is. I'm just going to trust the Lord. Somehow I'm going to take care of these things. And I'm going to walk in that door and I am going to be a loving, cheerful, happy, hey, let's be a family tonight. There's women who are just so tired and so weary and taking care of kids and what they're doing at their office or their career paths or trying to get a, a, a meal on the table or trying to whatever, all the challenges of life. And the reality is then they sit down at a couch and they have no emotional energy or begin to sense that husband wants to be intimate and you're just like, are you kidding me? Somebody else who wants a piece of it? And it's the husband now who's going to get the leftovers and instead of this being an exclusive, beautiful relationship, it's just one relationship among many. And he says, you're a lily among the brambles. My love, my love for you among the young women. And then, number four, so it's, a, it's powerful because of the exclusivity. Number four, marriage involves strong and deep emotions. So she compares him to an apple tree. An apple tree among the trees of the forest, so my beloved, so is my beloved among the young men. In other words, he's a stud tree is what he is. He's like, you're more beautiful than all the women. And she's like, you're the man among all the men. No better, you're the man among all the boys. You're, you're my hero. You're, you're, the, you're the man of my dreams. And, and they, they, they trade back and forth. So is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she uses him as a comparison of an apple that she sits under the shade of his um, protection. And she expresses further joy in his love. She describes it as, he brings me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. She, she, she says, he's, he brings me to a, cl- a, pr- a place of great joy. So here's my question. Is, is your house a place of great joy? Is this a place of laughter? A place of fun? Would you describe your house as a banqueting table? Or a, a, a banqueting house? We're going to go to the house that is fun to be at. Do you kids know that you have fun in the marriage? If I were to say, is your parents' marriage fun or is it stressful? What would they say? Or your friends? If you don't have kids, what would your friends say? Hey, do they enjoy one another or is it a little rocky? His banner over me was love. Means that there is this, 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 imagine a sign like display, it's like a flag flying. 
that says, love rules this house. There's this, this proud and public acknowledgement of, I'm proud to be married to you. I love being known as your wife. I love being known as your husband. There's a, a, mug, that I, a mug that I have in my office. It's one of those Starbucks mugs that has the city, you know, those city mugs that you can get in various cities that you travel to. Well, there's one that's Indianapolis. And I was drinking coffee from it the other day, and I just stopped, and I was smiling and I was thinking about how I got that mug. I got that mug on the first Sunday after I had been um, voted on and approved at College Park Church, and my wife bought it for me and put it on my desk in my office with a little note. It said something like, it's been a long journey to this point, and I just want you to know how proud I am of you. I still have that mug, and I look at it, and it symbolizes, it's like, a, like you could translate this, and the mug says, I'm proud of you. But that's what the text says, right there, right, right? So his banner over me is like, no, 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 scratch it out, and says, and the Starbucks mug says, I'm proud of you. That's, so how long has it been since you've told your husband or told your wife, I am so proud of you? How long has it been since you have said to them, you know how you handle the kids like that? Like, that's amazing that you do that. Like, like, I come home and, and you have all this stuff taken care of. Like, I, how in the world do you pull this? I am so incredibly proud of you. Verse 5, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. The idea is there's this beautiful swing of emotions. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. There's a, a picture here of physical safety and security. And then there's even an appeal to the daughters of Jerusalem. It says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So what's going to happen is you're going to see this little phrase uh, pop in here every once in a while, because when, and this couple isn't married yet, and when they begin to consider the beauty of what they feel for one another, it suddenly then she realizes, oh, but wait a minute. And then she like tells everyone, remember, 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 don't, don't, don't awaken love until it's time. Because instead of what she's saying is what I feel is so deep and so strong. This is beautiful, but it needs to be channeled in the right direction. This is a beautiful power of full motion, but it needs to not be awakened until it is time. One commentary says this, it is clear that the couple is already in love, but they must allow their love to proceed at its proper pace, which includes waiting until the right time to consummate it. So... She is celebrating the power of love, but that also comes with a warning. Number five, marital love overcomes obstacles and challenges. So part of the mystery of marriage is that it has the ability to overcome challenges and difficulties. Chapter 2 and verse 8, all the way to 3 and verse 5, there are barriers that happen to their love and barriers that happen to their desire for one another. Let me show you how this plays out. In 2 and verse 8, this woman hears his voice. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. He's distant. He's coming. These, these hills and mountains probably 
pictures, some things that serve as barriers, and he's not there, so he's coming towards her. Verse 9, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. The idea is there's there's some kind of, of separation between them. It may be time, it may be location, something else. Verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful woman, come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rocks and the crannies of the cliffs, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So something's happening here, that there's this, this longing to, to be able to be together, but somehow there is this, this, this separation that's taking place. And then verse 15 is really interesting, for then she says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in blossom. So I, I take this to mean that there are things that are challenging in their relationship and they're reflecting on this and there's some aspect of separation and challenge prior to their getting married and she then says my beloved is mine and I am his he grazes among the lilies until the day breath or day breeze rather and the shadows flee turn my beloved be like the gazelle or a young stag in the cleft of mountains so this idea of he, she's asking him to turn and to come back like something is caused an issue. And then in verses 1 to 4, she has a nightmare, a bad dream. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves, and I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. See all the emotions that are happening here? So... What are some obstacles or challenges that you face in marriage? What are some of the obstacles that you, you face in the context of marriage? Problems of communication? Problems of busyness and schedule where you may feel like this couple did, like I'm going here, he's going there. It's been a long time, maybe this retreat for you has been a, a long awaited moment for the two of you to be able to be together Maybe a, a lack of, of, of being friends together and, and not spending enough time together. Maybe your, your family backgrounds that you knew going into marriage have now become pretty evident and you're trying to figure out how do we take two very different family experiences and figure out what our roles are and how that all works. Maybe a lack of forgiveness or grace for one another. Maybe you have different spiritual passions. One of you is really excited about studying the Song of Solomon, and another one's just like, eh, not so much. One of you is really excited about going to church and studying the Word, and another one, not so much. Maybe you have different sexual desire and different levels of interest. So... What we have here is that marriage has obstacles and challenges. And can I just remind you, regardless of what any of those obstacles were, I just want to remind you 
that marriage was God's idea. He put you together with your spouse. He knew exactly what he was doing with your family backgrounds, with all your weaknesses, with all of your struggles. And there is nothing that you face that you don't have sufficient grace to be able to face together. Can I just remind you that God sovereignly brought you together as a husband and wife, and there is no challenge, no issue, no significant uh, reality that you're dealing with that God doesn't have sufficient grace to be able to help you to be able to work through that. You might say, well, where in the world do you get that from? Well, let me show you. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. There's been times in our marriage where we've had a conflict or an issue or a challenge that we face that's been so significant that I've had to take my heart all the way back to the book of Genesis and to remind me some of the truths that I'm going to share with you right now. First, Genesis 2:18. This is number six, or so how did all this begin or what is the hope here? Think of this as this is hope number one or point number six, and it's this. Genesis 2:18. Marriage was God's idea. When I got to get back to the very foundation of, of what marriage is, I remind myself that the Bible says this. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So marriage was God's idea. This marriage was to be a unique relationship from all of the created order. Prior to Eve showing up, Adam named all of the animals. He saw them, named them. And he saw something interesting about the animals. They all had another one. And yet, nothing that Adam had in his world resembled what he just experienced in the created order. And then God brings him Eve because it is not good that he would be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, singleness is not sinful, but God's original design was marriage. His original plan prior to the fall was there was to be a man and there was to be a woman, and there was never to be the one thing that singles tell me is the hardest part of being single which is the loneliness. And God puts them in the garden. He walks in the cool of the day. He brings Adam and Eve together. Marriage was God's idea. So at the very foundational level, when marriage is difficult or it's challenging, remind yourself that it's, if God is the designer of marriage, then what we need to do is to figure out how does he want marriage to work and then do what he says because he's the one that's designed marriage in the first place. So this marriage, as hard as it is, as challenging as it is, as difficult as it is, as glorious as it is, as beautiful as it is, it's, it was God's idea. This thing that is so beautiful and emotional and loaded, this was God's idea. Secondly, the Bible tells us that marriage is a gift from God. So marriage was God's idea. Secondly, or number seven, marriage is a gift from God. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was morning and evening the sixth day. In verse 27, we see that God says, or verse 26, let us make man in our own image. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So male and female were both designed to be able to reflect the image of God. And sexuality and their maleness and their femaleness was to be something that platformed the beauty of God's creative power. So marriage then is God's idea. Next, God's plan is to give mankind a gift called a marriage. And then finally, number eight, and the third one, marriage is a special relationship. Look at Genesis 2, 18 again. And then also 24. It's not good that man will be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then verse 24. And the man says, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. To have this idea of leaving and becoming one flesh, being woven together, is something that God puts together in order to say something special about himself and to create a special reality in the context of the world. So. There is something beautiful about a marriage that's working well. Something that is powerful, that communicates the beauty of the gospel, that helps us to see how we need the gospel in our lives, how we need Christ's power. You don't, listen, you don't really know how selfish you are until you get married. And then you have to merge two lives together and realize that, oh, like every part of my life now is, is, is intermingled with yours. And yet it also means that every part of my life is intermingled with yours. It means that you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I can't tell you how many elderly couples I've seen who, when a spouse has passed away, it wasn't that long until they passed away. Because they were, they were so united and so connected that like when that spouse died, something within them died. So... Let me remind you of a few things. Number one, no matter what the state is of your marriage, no matter what the state is right now of your heart in terms of that one flesh union, there is hope because marriage was God's idea. There's hope because God was the one who put you together. And somehow, some way, there's enough grace for you to be able to make it despite all of the things that you brought into your marriage. Secondly, marriage is absolutely worth fighting for because of the beauty of what it communicates to the world and the platform that it makes for the context of the gospel. And what my invitation to you is this evening is to think through, in light of the mystery of marriage, the exclusivity that we see in the second um, chapter of Song of Solomon, and in light of the power of what marriage could be in the world. So, What's one or two things that you'd love to see changed, improved, or your marriage growing in the next, let's say, three months? That's where this sheet comes in. And this is your homework for this weekend. Just one sheet. 
Six boxes total. Not too much to ask. Here's what I'd like you to do. Over the next 24 to 48 hours, you don't have to do it tonight, but I want you as a couple to talk through over the next three months, what one thing that if we did this would radically how radically change how we live our life as a family, how your marriage is for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I just want you to take one thing. I want you to take four things, or just take one thing. But if this one thing changed, like if this changed, like if we could get on top of this, like this would make a huge difference. If we could figure out how to communicate, if, if if we could work out this difference that we have regarding sexuality, or if we could figure out with this, this in-law thing that we're just struggling with, or if we could figure out this, this one child in our home is just a joy sucker out of our home. Right? The child wakes up and it's like it starts to thunder in his room and you're just like, oh, Lord, help us, help us, help us. And you're, you're counting the days. 3,452 days till he leaves. 3,451. You just, you're looking forward to the days when you can be launched out into the world. I maybe made that overly dramatic. So whatever it is, or you have a, a career that's just sucking the life out of you, and you've got no margin for your, your marriage. You think of what that is, and what this, this has been a helpful thing in our family that we have used, where we'll just take one thing over the next three months, and write it down, and, and spell it out as clear as you possibly can, and once you get that locked in, maybe share it with somebody else, a friend, to see, does this make sense to you? Is this, is this a big enough and a good enough goal? And then, and this is where many people fail to take the next step, underneath here are specific steps that should be taken in order to be able to accomplish this. And then to identify, what are some things that you could do? Let me give you an example, and then we'll close. About... Three years ago or so, the intensity of our homeschooling was um, creating a, a, a significant challenge in the context of our home. And so the rallying cry for us as a family and for my marriage was, we gotta figure out a way to lighten mom's load and create margins so that she can do this for another year. Because this, the path that we're on right now isn't gonna work. And so we identified that, that was the key thing, and then we began identifying particular things that needed to happen. Like, one was math is just not working. We got to figure out math. So math was on the box. We began praying about what do we do about math? Like I got to figure that out. And then another one was we had, we had one of our children who was just a relentless question asker. They, they, they love doing everything together, including homework and want mom to join them. And so therefore would ask questions, not necessarily because really didn't know the answer, but because like people doing homework with this particular child, right? And so what I did is I had 13 cards with numbers on them, 1 to 13, and I sat down with them. Okay, to him. You know it by now. And, um, and I said, son, here's the deal. Um, you're asking a lot of good questions of mom, but there's, it's too many. So here you go. There's 13 cards. You get to ask a total of 13 questions throughout the entire week. <laughs> Once the cards are gone, mom's not allowed to answer another question. He was like, well, well, then I'm going to have to think what questions I'm going to ask. <laughs> exactly. That was the point, right? And he got it right there. Boop, boop, boop. And it worked. That was all we had to do. Actually, we even used the cards from that point on because he had to start thinking about, but he had never thought about the questions he had to ask. And that one thing made a huge difference. And there were the four or five other things. And within three months, we had more margin. 
We figured it out. We rallied the entire family and said, this is what we're going to work on for the sake of, of our home and for our marriage. And we leveraged everyone who was on the refrigerator. Like, this is what we are doing for the next three months. We are going to take a step in this direction. And here's my thing. Don't take five steps in your marriage. Don't take ten steps. Take one. And then do three or four things that press you towards that. Here's the deal. Some of you men and women, you run phenomenal business units. If you ran your business like you run your marriage, you'd be out of business in three months. You, you don't know where you're going. You don't know. Like you can develop a strategic plan for all kinds of things. Multi-million dollar companies, you can run all these things. But the reality is your marriage needs the same level of intentionality in how you lead and run your family. So leverage those gifts and figure out what's one thing we can do and let's do it. Let's read a book together. There's a couple books that I'll share with you that Sarah and I, we were trying to figure some things out. And, it, and we, we read a book. To, uh, she read one book, I read another. And we read each other's books. And then we went out for a long weekend. And we discussed the books. And it was like, aha, we're finally figuring out what's going on in the context of our relationship. So these down here become the means by which you end up accomplishing this goal. My challenge for you would be to find in the next 24 to 48 hours a way to be able to fill this out and figure out what's one thing that together, God helping us, we can do to help make our marriage a little more the way God designed it to be. Because marriage was God's idea. He brought you together. He's not made a mistake. And there is something beautiful about what God says of a husband and wife coming together for his glory. Let me pray for you. Father, we ask you to give us now the understanding of how to apply this text rather these texts and what it is that you're calling for us to think about in terms of who we are and what our marriages are like I pray for brothers and sisters here this evening who are struggling with great disappointment that marriage isn't quite what you had hoped it would what they had hoped it would be and I ask you to give hope in their hearts that they can believe again and start to move forward. I pray for wisdom, Lord, as to what would be filled out in this rallying cry, what singular steps that could be taken. Lord, I pray for some in this room who one of the action points is going to have to be that someone needs to step into their life to give them some help and some counseling. Or a friend who can just be a mentor, a couple who can just walk with them. Would you provide the right people, provide a book if necessary, Lord, maybe even this weekend would help to open their eyes to how you want them to grow. So thank you for the Song of Solomon. Thank you for the book of Ephesians, Ezekiel, and Genesis. They all deliver the same message, that marriage is an amazing mystery that says something about Christ and his church. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.